Welcome to our fourth session of our study of the Psalms, Truthful Speech as Common Prayer. In this session, we're going to give an overview of those Psalms of Lament. But before I begin, I want to start with a quotation from the late John Stott, who was a leader of the 20th century evangelical movement and an Anglican priest. And in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he has this to say about the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. We need then to observe that the Christian life, according to Jesus, is not all joy and laughter. Some Christians seem to imagine that, especially if they are filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and be continuously boisterous and bubbly. How unbiblical can one become? No. In Luke's version of the sermon, Jesus added to this beatitude a solemn woe. Woe to you who laugh now. The truth is that there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. Christian tears. Too few of us ever weep them. Why is that? Well, for us here in the West, and especially in the United States, we might say that our science and technology have become so advanced that they insulate us from many of the difficulties and sorrows we once experienced. Medicine and medical technology, for example, have improved so much that we live longer and we can treat diseases that were once death sentences. But as Christians, it won't do to define life in such a materialistic way, a strictly biological way. It's certainly true that such advances cushion our bodies from suffering and death in ways that previous generations could not have imagined. But it's also true that such advancements can also insulate our souls from growth and maturing in Christ. We live, in the words of the Southern novelist and essayist Walker Percy, in an age marked by information and consumption, where our information, yes, has provided us life-extending advancements, but has not necessarily made us wiser or more peaceful. In fact, most of the information taken in by your average person today, regardless of which side of the political aisle you're on, is used to show how they are the cause of all of our society's problems. The grief we feel over changes in culture or policy get translated into anger and online venting sessions over those changes. And all the while, our anxiety and grief over those revisions in culture festers within us and, more importantly, goes unacknowledged before God. Or, we consume our way into forgetting our grief and avoid our Christian tears, settling for a comfortably numb existence by indulging in retail therapy, trying to maintain that perpetual grin that Stott talked about, but forgetting that our Lord was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, you may be thinking, Thanks, Father Michael, for cheering us up in this way. But it's important to remember what we said in our first session about lament. And that is, first of all, over one-third of the Psalter is composed of lament psalms. And as I said in that first session, in my mind at least, this suggests that our pain is as important to offer to God as is our praise. 
And secondly, we were made for praise, but sometimes, as we said, life gets in the way. And the way to learn to faithfully praise God is by first learning to faithfully lament our sorrows. So, we need to be aware of what hinders us from embracing lament before we can define what it is or how it shows up in the Psalms. Remember, this series is about praying the Psalms. The Psalms, which we said before, that resist discussions about God, inform us instead in how to respond to God, how to answer God, and shape us to embrace grief and not displace it or anesthetize it. And in the words of Ellen Davis that I've quoted before, they teach us that profound change always happens in God's presence. So let's begin this overview of the Lament Psalms by asking a question. What do the Psalms of Lament do? And it's important to see that the Lament Psalms do four things. The Psalms of Lament complain, they confess, they curse, and they call to mind. So first, the Lament Psalms complain. Now, we need to define our terms here before we go any further, because if you're like me, complaining was one of those deadly sins in that environment that I grew up in. Complaining meant whining. It meant not being appreciative of something good and instead wanting something else, like wanting chicken fried steak when you have been given meatloaf. But the complaints found in the Psalms are more like, in our day at least, the complaint you might give a manager at a restaurant when your food has been poorly served and it's come to you cold. There are certain expectations that you have, and when they're not met, you call on someone who can do something about it. It's not a perfect analogy, but these complaints in the Psalms are rooted in a different world and life view than our own, one that's quite ancient, and for us individualistic Americans can be a little hard to understand. Take, for example, these verses from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Notice the complaint here in this example takes the form of questioning God. And notice they also, in an indirect way, implicate God. That is, they imply that God is ignoring the psalmist's situation and thereby causing it. Or at the very least, he can do something about it, so please do something ASAP. Now, in the ancient Near East and today in the majority world, there's a system of patronage at work where someone without a voice, without power, without a way to protect themselves will align themselves with someone who can. And in return, they receive protection and aid when they need it. Now, this kind of system for us, especially as Americans, I think, makes us a little uncomfortable where we believe strongly in personal responsibility and everyone must earn their own keep. 
but it was and still is today in that majority world how poor people seek to provide and protect for themselves. But perhaps another analogy will help clarify what's really going on in these complaints in the Lament Psalms a little better. Russell Moore, an evangelical theologian and ethicist, recounts one of the eeriest experiences he ever had in his life in his book, Adopted for Life. When he and his wife were visiting an orphanage in Russia while adopting their two sons, Moore recounts walking into a room full of cribs and hearing no sounds, no cooing, no babbling, no crying and complaint over wet diapers or hungry stomachs. And that's because babies who lose their mothers early on and are kept in institutions learn that no one is coming for them when they complain. So they stop crying and they stop complaining. But babies and young children who are confident they will be heard, on the other hand, cry out for help. They complain when they're in need. That's a little more like what's happening in these complaints of the Lament Psalms. It reveals a confidence that God will come and help when they are in need. He will keep His promise to bless and keep His people. They're a song of faith sung to the Lord, however strained and choked that song may be by pain and grief. Now, next, not only do the Lament Psalms complain, they also confess. Here we look to those Psalms where penitence is expressed and sorrow over sin is acknowledged. Again, the psalmist is calling out in a time of need, looking to God for help. Psalm 51 is probably the best known of the penitential psalms, but here I want to look at some verses from Psalm 38. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. They weigh like a burden too heavy for me. As you can see from this passage, the source of King David's suffering, rather than being external to him, that is, the plots of some enemy or some kind of calamity, it's actually a product of his own doing. As he says, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. His iniquities, which are literally Acts of injustice, acts of wrong committed against neighbors are like floodwaters that are overwhelming him. And his sorrow is having physical effects in his body. Often the most Christian tears we can offer to God in prayer are those wept over our own sin and brokenness. That is, we learn in the literal sense of the word confess to speak the same thing as God about our misdeeds and our condition. We acknowledge that our misdeeds are guided by a misdirected and disordered passion that leads us to death. And we acknowledge that God's intent for us as His image bearers has been marred by our trying to find fully alive life apart from Him, the author of life. Now, next, not only do the Lament Psalms complain and confess, but they also curse. This 
is an element of lament, admittedly, that is hard for us to deal with. It makes us a little uncomfortable. As we said in our first session, this is one of those elements of the shocking Psalms that makes us not actually just merely uncomfortable, but even appalls us. As Christians, we're taught to pray for our enemies. We're taught to love our enemies. But in the lament Psalms, we see raw hatred on display toward enemies. As in Psalm 137, which I made mention of in our first session, here are the final lines from that Psalm. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Jerusalem and the temple had been razed to the ground. God's people had been captured and were now in exile among the pagan Babylonians. And this is how they feel about what's happened to them. Unfiltered, sputtering rage and hatred. So here, we're taken back to an original question we had in session one. How do we pray such a psalm? One that has such a foreign, not only historical context, but even for us Westerners, modern Westerners, a foreign emotional context. Well, again, Eugene Peterson's work on the psalms proves helpful. He says, as we've alluded to already, that our hate needs to be prayed. In fact, he says this, hate is our emotional link to the spirituality of evil. In other words, our hates, when they are rooted in wrongs that have been perpetrated against us or others that we love, or perhaps even more importantly, those who are vulnerable and not able to protect themselves, it's a sign that we're outraged because, as Peterson goes on to say, the holiness of being has been violated. Remember, the Psalms require us to bring our entire selves into our life of prayer. And if we look out on a broken world full of broken selves and see nothing that upsets us, we have to ask ourselves if we really believe, as Scripture shows, that there are real victims in the world and there is real evil at work. And God will not stand for mistreatment of those who can't help themselves. As Psalm 146 says, blessed is the one whose hope is the God of Jacob, who made heaven and earth, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. There are oppressed people in the world. Sometimes it's us, Sometimes it's someone we love, sometimes it's our neighbor, and God cares how they're treated. There are hungry people, sojourners looking for a safe place to call home, and God cares what happens to them. He cares about whether they're treated with the dignity that they have as His image bearers. When these people are mistreated, it should make us angry. If you are unfairly treated, it should make you angry. And praying the cursing psalms is our way to hold, as Ellen Davis says, our anger in good faith. 
so that in acknowledging our bitterness honestly before God and to God, we make room for Him to bring healing, not only to ourselves, but even to the situation we face and perhaps even to our enemies. Now, lastly, not only do the Psalms of Lament complain, confess, and curse, they finally call to mind. Now, though this is not in the Psalms, in the Book of Lamentations, we see a good example of what I mean of calling to mind. Lamentations, like Psalm 137, is also set in the wake of the Babylonian exile. Again, Jerusalem had been invaded, destroyed, the temple torn down, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken God's people into exile as captives, and his people were in sorrow. They were upset. They're angry. They felt forgotten and abandoned by God. In fact, we see these striking images at the beginning of the Book of Lamentations, where the lonely city of Jerusalem sits there, once bustling with people and activity, completely silent. It is now, as it says in chapter 1 of Lamentations, like a lonely widow with no one to comfort her. And this grieving over their judgment and their loss goes on for about two and a half more chapters until in the middle of chapter 3, we come to some really well-known verses that most of us probably know. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So in the midst of the destruction, the judgment, the sorrow for the losses that they're going through because of their sin, the voice of Lamentations, the author of Lamentations, calls to mind this reassuring truth that God's steadfast commitment to His people will never stop. What is often left out when we recite those verses from Lamentations 3 is the verse before, where it says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In other words, in the midst of the author's soul being bereft of peace, as he says, he says his endurance has perished and so has his hope in the Lord. In the midst of all that, he does something deliberate, intentional. He calls to mind. He speaks to his own soul. His soul, which has had the wind knocked out of it, which is down for the count, and he recalls the steadfast love of the Lord, this commitment God has to his people that will never stop and never be ended, even when judgment comes, even when sorrows like a flood overwhelm them. There's something interesting going on here, and it's a lesson for us. And we see it in the Lament Psalms as well. In the midst of the grief and the sorrow and the suffering for sin being expressed in those Psalms of Lament, there's most often, very few exceptions, most often there is a turn, a calling to mind. And as here in Lamentations, this turn happens when the steadfast love of the Lord is deliberately brought to mind. And we see this in a psalm that we quoted earlier, Psalm 13. It's quite short, and in the last two verses, verses 4 and 5, we read this. 
but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, scholars have debated for some time, what is the cause of this sudden shift in these lament psalms? This shift toward remembering God's steadfast love, a movement from pain back toward praise. And it seems to be simply on the surface, an internal experience of the individual, but some have argued that because the Psalms were used liturgically and in the common worshiping life of Israel, what could be happening in that gap between pain and movement toward praise, between how long, O Lord, and but I have trusted in your steadfast love, is the response of some authorized individual in the worship, worshiping community speaking to that complaint and sorrow of the psalmist. Something along the lines of, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, that we read in Isaiah 43. The point is, when we're in deep sorrow or loss or brokenness, we need someone outside our experience who can speak God's steadfast love into that pain and loss. Whether it's a priest you visit for confession or pastoral counsel, or even a trusted and wise friend, God's people are not meant to lament alone. So as we learn to faithfully lament, that is to shed Christian tears of complaint confession, and even cursing to God, laying them before Him to heal. May we also learn that none of us is called to do this on our own. And may we call to mind together God's steadfast love and prepare the way for faithful praise.